Hey, everybody, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, moms and dads, children of all ages. Welcome to Living on a Thin Line with Tony Visick. I am Tony Visick. We come to you every six days a week. Man, I always got to catch myself on that. Uh, don't want to lie to the people. Uh, six days a week at 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. We are your daily distraction while the anger, anxiety, weirdness, and hoopla on the world today. We come to you on three platforms, Comedy Schools, Radio Network.com, YouTube Comedy Schools, and right here on a Facebook Live. Hello, Tina and Mike Lawson. Uh, it's not just a podcast, it's a community. We have been doing this show since sometime towards the end of March of this year. Uh, it was a way for us to have a break from all the insanity and anxiety and hoopla of the world. And my, how much the world has changed from, say, March 1st of 2020 till now. A different president, uh, different people in Congress, um, a world that uh, uh, all of a sudden had to go indoors and stay indoors. Over 300,000 Americans that were with us in the beginning of this year, no longer with us. Pushing to 310. Science doing incredible things right now. And uh, through it all, and, and, and having to do constant changes in our business models, this show has been um, one of the uh, steady ships in our sea. Um, I got someone in here who's got a helmet. They want to show you the helmet. So uh, this, of course, is my grandson, Sullivan. There he is, and he's wearing a very cool Star Wars helmet, which we found today at Mr. E's Comics. Now, I don't know if Brian and those guys have a website. I'm sure they do. Mr. East Comics in the sleepy little hamlet, in the sleepy little burg of Maricopa, Arizona, there is a comic book store, which has become my new Jones. We're trading comics and buying comics, getting comics and getting upset because someone's beating us to comics. And it's becoming a whole thing. And Sullivan and I go up there once or twice a week. And today, sitting behind the counter, they had that Star Wars helmet. We go, got to get it. Got to get it before the original Star Wars pilot wakes up in a stupor someplace uh, in some galaxy far, far away and realizes he lost his helmet and comes looking for it. So if you happen to be a, uh, uh, I'm not a big Star Wars fan, so, <laughs> but if you happen to be a uh, aviator, a pilot, a fighter pilot for, uh, for uh, fighting the Empire, then, and you've lost your helmet, uh, Sullivan Ramirez has it. And uh, it's here in Maricopa. And you can't have it back. You can't have his helmet back. So anyway, if you're into like collecting comic books and collectibles and all that kind of stuff, Mr. East Comics in Maricopa, Arizona. I'm sure they have a website. Check it out. They have a lot of cool stuff. They're great people. I just think it's so neat. I think it's so swift. I think it's so peachy keen. I think it's so cool. That our town, which uh, I really like this town. I like it a lot. I don't know if I liked it when I was 22 or 32, but I love it now. And I loved it, you know, from the time I moved in. Uh, we're not a real big counterculture town, alternative culture, pop culture town. You know, we're not that. You know, we're a suburb with uh, not big box stores, but, you know, chain stores. Uh, there are some really cool 
uh, local independently owned businesses, shops and restaurants. For the most part, you know, uh, we look like a lot of uh, Greater Phoenix. But we have our own comic book store. Yes. Mysteries Comics. And I'll be getting cool stuff up there. I might show you some of it later on if you're lucky. If you hang on. There's a lot of cool things going on in the comedy neighborhood tonight that I'm going to tell you about. Live on Zoom this evening at 7.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. I will be doing Class Clowns. Class Clowns is the longest running comedy showcase in the Valley. Uh, people have gone from their first show to national television. Um, it's kind of wild to watch how so many of the people who started with us, the things they've gone on to do in comedy and uh, in, other, in other venues. Some of them have gone into the business of comedy. Some have gone on to become actors of, uh, uh, not superstardom, but stardom and uh, regular success. Um, you know, it's cool to watch. And it all starts with this showcase, which we have been doing since uh, September 2001. I say 20 years, but, you know, 19, what the hell. Uh, September 2001, we have been doing this particular, uh, or maybe it was October. October 2001, thereabouts. Um, yes, I'm sorry, it was October 2001 that we did our first advanced comedy showcase at another club in the city, and now we are on Zoom and at JP's Comedy Club. We'll be doing a live show for you Sunday at 5 p.m. In order to attend the Zoom show tonight, all you got to do is send me a private message. I'll send you a link. Sit back in the comfort of your own home and experience, uh, uh, avail yourself of the experience of seeing people, a few of them doing their very first show and be able to track their success and fame or end up seeing them on some tabloid television uh, in an orange jumpsuit. So uh, I got that going. Sunday night, I'm doing a live version. Sunday evening, I'm doing a live version of it over at uh, JP's Comedy Club at 5 p.m. Tickets are only $15. If you're in the greater Gilbert area and you're looking to have some fun on Sunday afternoon, uh, we are your answer. Also tonight at JP's Comedy Club, an alumni of ComedySchools.com, Michael Longfellow is headlining the show. Michael Longfellow, very funny guy, now lives in Los Angeles, is, uh, came back home to do a weekend with us. He's been on Conan and he's been on NBC's uh, Bring Me the Funny. Uh, and we are expecting, uh, we're hoping for him big things in the future when we can finally get out and about. So um, I've been getting out and about less. You know, I know some people go, there's a vaccine. Let's just run naked through the streets. They got ourselves a vaccine now. How about we all just get naked and run through the streets? Um, yeah. I'm not doing that. Anyway, you know, I don't want to do that anyway. It'd scare the kids. You know, they'd probably kick me off the, uh, kick me up my seat on the uh, board of directors of the Maricopa Homeowner Association. I don't know if I would take that risk. You know, speaking of risks, I read an article today about a show that Richard Pryor did in 1977. A show that Richard Pryor did in 1977 at the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles, California. Well, Hollywood, California, but Hollywood's not a real city. It's not an incorporated town. It does not have its own mayor. It doesn't have its own charter. It's just an idea. Hollywood is just an idea. Uh, and it was one of the early, uh, uh, it was an early organization championing gay rights. But Richard, being Richard, got pissed off backstage. Because the show was for gay rights, and he looked at the audience, and all he saw were 
white people, well-dressed, upper-middle-class white people. That's what he saw. And backstage, there was only one African-American performing group besides him, and it was an acrobatic group, and he saw them being treated poorly. The stagehands wouldn't help them. They weren't paid attention to, where the ballerinas were fawned all over. So Richard Pryor went out on stage in front of 17,000 people. And it was a show where they were trying to take the high moral ground. So for, therefore, they weren't talking about anything about um, uh, the uh, intermi- intricate, intimate activities that one engages in and whom they engage in it with when they are uh, of, that, uh, uh, of that nature and just lambasted these people to the point of being booed and catcalled. Booed and catcalled. Saying, I don't care. I don't care. You don't care about black people. And uh, it's an interesting thing. You should look it up and read about it. And I realized it was just a couple of years later that Richard Pryor did what was the uh, seminal, the, uh, which you could basically be the end-all, be-all comedy special, Richard Pryor Live on the Sunset Strip. And just realized, I, I was watching some, some videos of him earlier in the day and just realizing just how funny he was and how devilish, devilishly excited he was when he was performing and in the moment and how he couldn't help but push that envelope. But every time he pushed it, it was hilarious. Now, not hilarious at all. There were a lot of white people didn't like uh, Richard Pryor. People didn't like black people didn't like Richard Pryor. People like Bill Cosby. He's clean. See, that Bill Cosby is nice. He's clean. He's well-dressed. Now, Richard Pryor, I don't know. He's kind of weird. Um, that you just saw the pure joy this guy had in performance stand-up. And I don't know if they had much pure joy in anything else. But then on any given night, any given night, it would blow up in his face so bad, it would scar him worse than when he set himself on fire. And then I read a Facebook post from uh, a female comic a couple weeks back about, uh, by a, a female comic um, named Felicia Michael. She's a comic, happens to be female. It's very funny. One of those people who's been at the comedy store forever. All right? Um, you know, and there's those people that, uh, and the comedy store is probably the last of them, uh, a long-running comedy club that has its own culture where people basically turn that into their home. And I don't say anything wrong with it. It's kind of cool. You have a home. You have an artistic home. And watch people come in well after them and then oftentimes go far past them. Not always. Some people go on to fortune and fame. Bruce Willis was a bartender at the Hollywood Improv. Can you imagine being a struggling comic for years, trying to work it out, trying to get noticed by casting agents and producers and directors, and a guy who you were tipping a buck a couple years ago, is now on national television. It goes on to be one of the biggest stars of all time. That's some of the weird things that happen to you in Hollywood. But Felicia wrote a little article about uh, when she was a young comic at the comedy store and Richard Pryor came in working on a set and she was just thrilled. She was just excited. You know, uh, she couldn't wait to see her idol. He was one of the reasons she liked to get into stand-up comedy. She liked what he did. And he ate it. And she was appalled and she felt sad and she felt horrible and she goes oh my god my hero it's over for him and he left there was a couple of titters here and day and the next night he came in and the only jokes were people tittered at and stuff he told those again but some other new ones did a little better by the fourth night he was doing a Richard Pryor set 
through trial and error and listening to the audience, you know, and having that incredible talent and that ability to write and that ability to perform, which was well honed by then, he was able to pull together that set. Now, the closest I ever came to witnessing that was in 1988 in Kalamazoo, Michigan, when I found myself working as the feature act. There's an opening act, a feature act, a headliner for one Bill Hicks. And Bill was already uh, famous for a couple things. He was famous for how funny he was on the road, out, out in flyover America. The people that book clubs out there were in awe of him. He had left Los Angeles in disgust. He hated Los Angeles, thought it was full of demons. And he was just running around Texas and Oklahoma and Ohio and Michigan and Virginia and all those places doing stand-up comedy and uh, drinking himself to the point where every club you went to, they'd go, he's a genius, but he's going to die soon. He'd drink himself to death. And I saw him on a Wednesday night in Kalamazoo, and I watched him walk almost the entire room. I watched him bomb terribly, and I was just stunned. After everything I'd heard about this guy, after I'd heard some of the jokes he'd written, go, man, that guy's good. And I remember talking to a friend of mine on my phone that night going, I don't know, man, the drugs and the booze must have gotten to him because he just, bleh. And the next night, reworking that set, moving things around and making it funnier. And by the weekend, having a bunch of folks who thought it'd be, hey, you know what? They're going to have, they got a comedy club in a, in a base for the Holiday Inn. Right here in Kalamazoo now, kids. You, you don't have to like go to a big city like Detroit or Ann Arbor or anything, you know, you know who lives there anyway. Uh, they're bringing a comedy right here to Kalamazoo. What do you say that after supper, uh, we scrub up and we, uh, we all hop into the Datsun and go on down there? Two, so it's not like, Kalamazoo's not a bad town, but it's not full of like hipsters, you know, beatniks, communists. <laughs> it's Kalamazoo. It's most famous for a big band song of the 1940s. I got a gal in Kalamazoo. And I watched him turn that room of middle class, about 50% middle-aged white people into howling, screaming, laughing, crying puddles of joy. And I don't know why I decided to start talking about that today. Um, maybe because I didn't prepare for the show. Uh, maybe because it was Richard Pryor was reading about today and realizing... Uh, sometimes what it takes to do any of this. What it takes to do any of this and what those great artists invested in doing it. The chances they took. They didn't go out there and go, I'm going to eat it on purpose. They went, I got to try something new. So just a couple little stories for you. I don't know if they're going to be applicable to you as a comic or you in your life. But uh, uh, just a couple little stories about a, a man named Richard and a boy named Bill. Okay. Hey, um, let's talk about the music today. I'm going to talk about a guy who, um, uh, one group of guys that took chances and one guy who never took chances. One group of guys who took chances and one group of guys who never had chances. So basically what I talk about is who I think was the last great rock band in America. Now they weren't the biggest rock band in America. But I think is the last great rock band in America. So, you know, if you look at the metamorphosis of rock and roll to rock, to hard rock and how it's splintered up over the years, by the time we get to the 90s, uh, what's really happening is grunge. But grunge is its own sp specific sound. 
basically it's, you know, tuning everything down to a low E, I think. Taking everything octave on the guitar gives you that heavy sound. I used to say that the last great rock band, I'm not talking about them as human beings, they should be hoisted up on a pedestal or anything. The last great rock band was the one that could then turn out the lights was Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses were the last great rock band. A band that was just a rock band. As Aerosmith was just a rock band. As the Rolling Stones kind of helped define rock. As Tom Petty was a rock band. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. They weren't heavy metal. They weren't grunge. They weren't speed metal. They weren't uh, any of that. They were just rock. Okay? So, but that slowly began to get supplanted as it got specialized, as it went into metal, you know? Do you know who won the Grammy for the first uh, heavy metal artist? Jethro Tull. So, after Guns N' Roses, this little band formed, and they weren't around long, but they really captured the ethic, that outlaw ethic, not that criminal ethic, not that death cult ethic, but captured the outlaw ethic, the same thing that Willie and Whalen we had done with country. These guys were doing rock. When they walked on stage, they had the attitude of outlaws. They had the attitude of people who go against the grain. They have the attitude of people who uh, are going to do things their own way. Damn the torpedoes full speed ahead, which was a uh, saying from World War II and an album by uh, Tom Petty. And the band was Velvet Revolver. Can you see that? They're coming up, right? Velvet Revolver. So Velvet Revolver consisted primarily of three members of Guns N' Roses, a guy from Wasted Youth, and Scott Whelan from Stone Temple Pilots. So Stone Temple Pilots was a grunge band that was more close to a rock band than, say, Nirvana. Nirvana was in a class of their own. They created a sound. You know, and all those bands that came out of Seattle at the time, Pearl Jam uh, uh, becoming the most successful you know, uh, Alice in Chains, et cetera, Stone Temple Pilots, uh, close to rock. And they combined together and formed what is normally known as a super group. That's when major players from two already large, successful uh, musical groups uh, get together and form a new group. The first super group of the rock era was in 1969. It was a band called Blind Faith with uh, Eric Clapton, of course, just recently from Cream, Ginger Baker from recently from Cream, uh, Steve Winwood from Traffic, and a guy named Rick Gretsch from Family. So it was mainly Clapton and uh, Winwood that made it a super group. Funny story was uh, Clapton left Cream because he was scared to death of Ginger Baker. Ginger Baker was such a maniac. And uh, he's there to rehearse with Steve Winwood, and Ginger Baker walks in and goes, I'm your drummer. <laughs> Clapton goes, oh, okay. <laughs> They were the first great supergroup of rock. I think the last great supergroup was Velvet Revolver. And if you saw, I never saw them live, but seeing their stage performances taped, they had all that energy, all that contained anarchy, all that kid in the back of the, sits in the back of the class with his jeans too tight, wearing sunglasses, but a cigarette hanging outside of his mouth that's not lit, who's sullen and sulky and pouting, and everything's going to be a loser but through the power of music, makes something out of himself. That's what every one of these guys strike me as. And Scott Whelan was probably the last great frontman in rock. 
The guy was when you want, like you know, you talk about music or comics being dangerous. Sam comic, Sam Kinison was a dangerous comic because you had no. Why is it dangerous? It's a mostly dangerous because you're not quite too sure what they're gonna do next, and when they do it, you kind of can't believe they did it, but it works. The same with Bill Hicks. Same with Richard Pryor. Not so would say Robin Williams, who had so much joy and silliness in it that uh, it didn't have that element of danger. It had a constant element of surprise but not danger. Scott Whelan was a front man who had that element of danger when he was on stage. What's he going to do next? What's he going to do next? It's kind of like watching Iggy Pop, watching Iggy Pop, Ted Nugent, uh, 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 David Lee Roth, okay, but all combined into one, but also a totally unique experience. He was, in my mind the epitome of a rock frontman. And I've seen a few, and oftentimes rock frontmen are kind of annoying because all they're doing is sucking all the energy. But you got to keep in mind that when you're talking about Slash, you can't suck all the energy away. That's why bands like Aerosmith work so well. These bands that were, that really, um, really, they had uh, other members, but the personality, the heart and soul of those bands were the lead singer and the lead guitarist that kind of started with the Rolling Stones with Mick and Keith. And then later on, we see, saw it with bands like uh, uh, Guns N' Roses, of course, with Slash. You know, uh, uh, we saw it with uh, um, uh, David Lee Roth and uh, Eddie Van Halen from Van Halen. You know, we saw it in Aerosmith, okay? And what it was, was they, the front man could be ungodly powerful without making the band disappear because the lead guitarist was always bringing us back to the band. So as far as the ethic, the style, the sound, the attitude, the last great rock band, and you can argue with me about this, you can tell me there was another great rock band after them. Because by the time they came along, by the way, the rock era was over. It's not that rock doesn't exist. Rock and roll is here to stay. It will never die. Uh, but as far as it being the predominant, omnipresent, sound of america it had faded and the song we're going to recommend from this um it's just a hot tune man and you go yeah that's like a dangerous tune it kind of gives you that kind of where you hunker down and bounce is slither slither from velvet revolver slither from velvet revolver that's our musical recommendation today um scott whelan slash bill hicks richard pryor Sam Kinison, they all took chances. They all took creative chances. Unfortunately, we often saw that in their lives as well. You know, although Richard succumbed to Parkinson's disease, a life of, uh, of uh, epic, epicurean abuse. And that's what it is with these guys. It's epicurean abuse. Um, uh, oftentimes uh, sucks the marrow out of them long before they shuffle off this martyr coil or uh, sends them on their way far too early. That's what happened with Scott Whelan, with uh, Richard. It was, uh, you know, a slow de-evolution. Uh, Eddie Van Halen just smoked too much. Every time you saw Eddie Van Halen, he had a goddamn cigarette in his mouth. Um, they all took incredible creative chances, but they were, they were consummate enough craftsmen consummate enough craftsmen they knew their instrument well they knew their song well before they sang it 
to be able to take those chances. You see, if you don't know how to swim, stay the fuck off the high dive. All right, that's our show for today. I hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, I won't be with you tomorrow. Tomorrow is Saturday, 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 and I'll be taking the day off, but I'll be back with you on Sunday for a little Sunday sermon right here on Living on a Thin Line with Tony Visick. Uh, Hey, I'll see you either tonight on Zoom or this Sunday at JP's or uh, Sunday right here at 2 o'clock. Bye-bye. Huh? I mean, I don't know if it went through. What do you mean it went through? On Comedy Schools Radio?